Well, guys, my name is Stephen. I'm the associate pastor. If you're new here, the good news is, is that you don't have to listen to me teach very often. Charlie is our lead pastor. He's the guy. I'm not the guy. Typically, you'll see me behind a guitar and a microphone, uh, but I'm humbled to be here today and serve in his stead in this way. If you would, go ahead and open up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we'll be spending most of our time right there in John 3 this morning. I'll give you a minute to do that. John chapter 3 contains this amazing account of a man named Nicodemus. The more I studied Nicodemus, I thought, what a cool name he had. How come nobody names their kid Nicodemus anymore? If my wife would let us have another one, I might consider that. But she has told me, no, absolutely not. We are done. Many of you know the story of Nicodemus already because his story frames the context for the most probably well-known verse in the Bible. You guys know it, right? John 3.16. Nicodemus' story frames that verse. But however, Nicodemus' story actually goes on all throughout the book of John, as you'll see this morning. And before we really dig into chapter 3, I want to give some context. If you're around me much and we study the Word of God, you'll hear me say, context is what? King. Context is king. When you study God's Word, always read in context. Never read out of context. And at the end of chapter 2, I'm going to give you some context. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this, and it'll be be up on your screen. You can keep your finger there in chapter 3. But at the end of chapter 2, it's the Passover feast in Jerusalem, which means like Super Bowl Sunday. Everybody from the surrounding areas has all come to Jerusalem. It's packed. It's crowded. Okay, And at the end of chapter 2, the whole city is bustling. And in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2, there's an interesting account that sort of sets the stage for the encounter with Nicodemus, okay? So it says at the end of chapter 2, 23 through 25, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man, So let me just break that down a little bit and unpack it for you. Jesus has come to town. He's cleansed the temple. He's performed many signs and wonders, including the turning of water into wine. It's generally recorded as his first public miracle. And he's made quite a stir in the city. His name is being whispered throughout the city alleyways and homes, and everybody is asking, who's this Jesus character? The Pharisees in particular seem to be taking an interest in him. People are beginning to respond to him, but they did not believe with a saving faith. If you look here where it says Jesus himself would not entrust himself to them, you know, sometimes when we read the difference between the Greek and English, some things get lost in translation. And so a good way to look at this is, that the people were coming to Jesus, they were interested in him, and they were starting to place their faith in him. But it wasn't a saving faith, because it says here that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And so if you translate it well, it says they were trying to place their faith in Jesus, but Jesus didn't have faith in them. In other words, he knew that what they were interested in was not really salvation. It wasn't him, it was in the miracles that he was doing. Do you understand? 
And this is the context that Nicodemus comes into. The stage has been set, almost as if a high drama is laying out in front of us on a stage. Enter Nicodemus. Let's read the entire account in John 3, okay? This will be John 3, verse 1 through 18, and we're going to read it all so that we can stay in context, and it actually goes relatively quickly here, beginning in verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at what? Don't miss that. That's important. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. But how can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, He gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So this is Nicodemus, guys. We know a few things about Nicodemus from this text, and so let me lay out a few things about him briefly. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he wasn't just any Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. This is kind of the upper echelon of them. He's a ruler. Okay, he's powerful. He's probably wealthy. And like people who are powerfully powerful and wealthy, they're also highly influential people. So Nicodemus has come to him. He's likely one of, if not the primary Bible teacher at this time. We know that because some versions, instead of saying, uh, when Jesus talks to him in verse 10, in some versions, he actually says, are you the teacher of Israel? And you still don't know these things. So we know he was up there. This guy was a major league Jewish religious official. Now these people, they knew the word of God frontwards and backwards. Most of them had memorized from a young age the first five books of our modern Bible, the Pentateuch. They could quote it. If you think showy, condescending, prideful, you got a pretty good idea of who Pharisees were. Think Saul of Tarsus 
before the Damascus Road enlightenment, we'll call it. And you've got Nicodemus pegged. These people were better than you, and they knew it. And they were better than you. They did everything perfectly down to a T. They were kosher, they were meticulous, and they were fastidious in all things Jewish. And Nicodemus has climbed to the top of that heap. It is this man who has darkened Jesus' door. And he comes to him to ask him a question. Now, this meeting is significant for a number of reasons. First one is, Jesus is a Galilean laborer. Okay? So this guy is your typical lower income type worker in our modern day equivalent. They'd go from job to job doing whatever needed to be done there. So for Nicodemus to have come to this guy, think blue blood meets blue collar. That's what's going on here. And that that just wasn't done. It just wasn't done. And, And even in our day, that still exists, but especially in his day, it did. Secondly, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, as we've already talked about. And if you know your New Testament generally well, you understand Jesus was no friend of the Pharisees. These guys hated him. They're the ones who would later have Jesus brought up on charges and sentenced to death and die on a cross. What is Nicodemus doing there? Another thing that's interesting is that Jesus is visited by Nicodemus at night. Now, why do you think Nicodemus came to him at night? So nobody would see him. That's right. He was embarrassed to be there. But something drew him. Something drew drew Jesus, or drew Nicodemus to Jesus. You know, from our 21st century cheap seats, it's easy to judge the Pharisee in John chapter 3. But Nicodemus, for all the things he did wrong, he did one thing right. Nicodemus came to Jesus. He took a step towards Jesus. That's your first point this morning. Be humble enough to step towards Jesus. Be humble enough to step towards Jesus. The great Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, has come to seek advice from a humble Galilean laborer. Verse 2 says that he refers to Jesus as rabbi and teacher. And Nicodemus hasn't quite wrapped his head around things yet. There's something to this Jesus character, and he hasn't figured it out. But he has a question deep in his heart. And so he's drawn to Jesus. Nicodemus climbed to the top of the religious heap, and he's found it lonely and wanting and unfulfilling. He compliments Jesus and says, you must be from God. The miracles you do clearly suggest that. But Nicodemus can't see that when he says, you must be from God, It's the understatement of the millennia. His religion clouds his vision. He sees Jesus as a a prophet, possibly. But Jesus has no such vision problems. 
Jesus sees right into Nicodemus's heart. He knows the question he's going to ask before he even answers it. And so Jesus ignores the flattering small talk that Nicodemus says here, and he just cuts right to it. You've got to picture the scene. Nicodemus and all of his regalia comes and says, Rabbi, we know you must be from God. All the signs and wonders you do clearly suggest that that's the case. And what does Jesus say? Jesus just shifts gears immediately. He goes right to what was in the man's heart. And he says, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is a bit set on his heels. He wasn't expecting that. He's shocked. And so he stammers a weak reply. He knows Jesus is using a metaphor here. But instead of trying to learn from the metaphor, he takes it to a ridiculous extreme. Look at verse 4. He, you know, he basically stammers something to the effect of, you know, can I go back into my mother's womb, Jesus? Of course not. A grown man going back into the womb of his mother? No. And all the mothers in the room this morning said, amen, right? No, that's not happening, right? But Jesus is patient, and so he begins to explain. Look at verses 5 through 7 here. Let's read those. Jesus answered, I assure you, Unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be, what? Born again. He's using that phrase again. Now, the water reference here, don't be confused, is not saying you must be baptized in the water and then you can enter the kingdom of God. This isn't referring to baptism. It's actually referring to your, your, your human birth process. Okay, And we know that from the context because he goes on to then explain more. Right, What's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born of water and then be born of the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? In the original language, this phrase born again is really important. It means from above. Everybody say from above. Now this sets a Pharisee on their heels. I can't emphasize this enough that we have a hard time seeing like this Pharisee saw. He only knew how to earn his salvation, you see. I will do this, 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 and then hundreds of laws. And I'll do all this perfectly. And by doing that, God is now obligated to give me salvation. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. And so Jesus tells him, no, no, it has to come from above. This isn't something that, that, that you do. And so Jesus looks at Nicodemus, the Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be reborn. Not these people you scoff at as sinners. No, no, you, you're the one I'm talking to tonight. You're the one who needs to be born again. You're the one who needs to be humble. No religious acts or pious lifestyle can give you this. Knowledge of God in Scripture will not do it. I know that you know the Bible, Nicodemus, but that's not going to do it. You cannot do it. It comes from where? From above. And to a Pharisee, this is just inconceivable. So again, Nicodemus is just stumped. He's just not there yet. He's still blinded. Look at his reply in verse 9. What's he say? How can these things be? He still doesn't get it. So then Jesus begins to lay it out for Nicodemus in the following verses here. Now, 
If you yourself this morning do not understand the process of being born again, I wouldn't blame you. And I'm going to attempt to explain it to you because this is crucial for everyone here this morning. We've talked many times about this before, but you cannot earn your salvation, folks. It's something given as a free gift from the Father to us. And he gave his only son on the cross to die for our sins and be risen again, which we'll celebrate in a couple weeks. You can't earn it. Religious acts won't do it. And knowledge of God won't do it either. You see, it, it, it's not enough to say, well, I know that, that there's God and that he has a son. And, and that, that's not the belief that the Bible talks about, that saving belief. The Bible says that even the demons in hell know that, and yet they tremble in fear. It's a trust that's very similar to a chair. Many of you have heard this analogy before, right? It's one thing to say, that's a chair. It's another thing to say, that is a chair, and it's the only chair, and it's the only way, and I will trust in it with my full weight. This is belief. This is, this is the saving faith. That's not what Nicodemus thought. That's not what the people in Jerusalem were thinking that we referenced in chapter 2. Nicodemus' whole life was built on rules and scales and systems. The, the Pharisees had come to worship a system that was supposed to help them worship God. The Jews expected the Messiah to come as a conquering military commander and to set up an earthly kingdom, to overthrow Rome, to establish the country of Israel. They wanted a conquering king, and Jesus just wanted to conquer their hearts. They were looking for an earthly kingdom, and Jesus wanted to set up his kingdom here in his people. They've missed the forest for the trees. Now, we sometimes do this. I've, I've got a few interesting quotes here. I thought that we'd find these humorous this morning. Uh, in 2001, a national magazine ran a contest, and they asked their employees to submit memos and emails from their workplace, which were dripping with ironic bureaucracy, where the red tape just gets in the way of things that are more important that need to get done. Listen to some of these. As of tomorrow, employees will be able to access the building only by using individual security cards. Pictures will be taken next Wednesday, and employees will receive their cards in two weeks. That was first place. Second place said this one, We know that communication is a problem, but the company is not going to discuss it with the employees. And here's my favorite one, and probably the most applicable to this morning's message. This project is so important, we cannot let things that are more important interfere with it. Anybody ever work for a company like that? Don't lie. You're in church. Yeah. Sometimes the little stuff gets in the way of the big stuff, doesn't it? Sometimes the molehills get stared at. And we're oblivious to the mountain. 
The irony abounds here. Of all the people on earth, the Pharisees should have been the first people to herald the arrival of Jesus Christ. And they weren't. For all their knowledge, the Pharisees have missed Jesus. The single most prominent focal point of the entire scriptures. Jesus stands before them as the foretold Messiah in their foreground. And their lens is out of focus on Jesus and looking at the past and the systems of, surely this will get me my salvation. And Jesus is in, in, the, in the middle of it all going, hello? Look at me. Look at me. I'm the one that you need to look to. So what does Jesus do with this scholar of the Old Testament, with Nicodemus? He does what all great leaders do. When they see the disconnect between where they're at and where you need them to be, Jesus comes right to where he is and he speaks his language to them. He goes to the Old Testament. Look at John three fourteen through 15 because it references a story from the Old Testament. Okay? 13 through 15, or 14 through 15 of John 3. Okay? It says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, what he's referencing there, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to run through it really quickly, is a story from Numbers 21 in the Old Testament. Now, this is Nicodemus' wheelhouse. He knows this scripture. He knows what's happening. He can probably quote it for you, chapter and verse. So Jesus speaks his language. And what's going on here is that God's people are in the wilderness and they've been grumbling against Moses and against God and they've been complaining. Why did you bring us out here? You took us out of Egypt. At least there was food there. Now we're out here in the desert wandering around and we're sick of this heavenly food you've been providing for us. And God says, oh, really? And so some venomous snakes are released by God and they start biting God's people and they start to suffer and die terrible deaths. And immediately... They say to themselves, this was a mistake. We, we shouldn't have done that. Right? So they go to Moses. Moses, Moses, intercede for us, Moses, please. Intercede for us on behalf of us to God. Ask him to save us. We're sorry. We repent. This was wrong. And Moses goes, okay. So he does just that. And God goes, okay, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to build this tall staff. And on the end of the staff, I want you to put this bronze serpent on it. And whenever the people look up to it, they'll be saved. And that's what Jesus is referencing here from John 3, 14, 15. He says, just as the people looked up at the stake stake with a snake on it, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And all who look to him and believe in him will be saved. Interestingly enough, a little side note here for the next time that you're on Jeopardy, our modern EMT symbol is, is taken from Numbers 21. See the staff and the snake? Now here's the problem. If you know the rest of the story, if you know the Paul Har- Harvey version of Numbers 21, what happens is the people, catch this, the people, instead of worshiping God, they begin to worship the staff and the snake and burn incense to it. God's like, really? Like, and later, in 2 Kings, don't turn there now, but just make a note if, you're, if you like to study 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18, God calls them out on it. Okay, it says that what they were doing was, it says the children of Israel were worshiping many idols and that they worshiped God. 
but they worshipped additional idols as well. They simply added God to their worldview of worship. God was the equivalent of a lucky rabbit's foot on a keychain with many charms. Sound familiar? And it's in this moment that King Hezekiah comes in in chapter 18 of 2 Kings, and Hezekiah says, no, 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 this isn't good, and he has the staff with the snake destroyed. And then he goes to all the other idol worship places where the children of God are worshiping other idols. He has all that torn down and destroyed. He goes, there's one God. We're going to worship one God. And King Hezekiah was recorded as a great king of Israel, that there was none before him or after him that was like him. Hezekiah has a little, literally a come-to-Jesus meeting with God's people. Think about this for a minute. This is the people's problem even in Nicodemus' day. They want to worship a system, but not God. Look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 38 through 40. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees again, and he says, You don't have his word living in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me, and you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. You think you have salvation because you know so much about me, Jesus says. But you don't know me. So in this section, Jesus is looking at Nicodemus with a story Nicodemus is intimately familiar with. And he says, listen, you know what your forefathers did was wrong, and you're still doing it. Don't do what they did. Don't look to a system. Look to me. Don't try to become familiar with laws and regulations. Look to me. Become familiar with me. Walk with me. I will be lifted up, and you can look to me, and I will save you. It is this death that will bring you life. That's your second point this morning, that before you can come to God, you have to turn from your ways. Turn from your ways and step in his ways. Now, all this comes as the preface for the book of John's most famous scripture, beginning in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Read with me. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not judged but anyone who does not believe is already judged because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So Jesus sets up this teaching with Nicodemus by showing him something he's already familiar with. He meets him where he's at. And he says, you have to stop trying to do things your way. Turn from your way. Come my way. The saving faith 
is one that admits your own inadequacies. If you've simply added Jesus to to all the other idols that are in your life, you're, you're making the same mistake that God's people did. Jesus will not just be a nice addition to your life. He has not come to reform you and reform your life. The Bible says that you were dead and your sins and your transgressions. You can't reform a dead person. Jesus has come to offer life to all of us from above and to give you a new life, to be born again. We have to admit that we are not good enough, that our way of doing things will not work, and we have to cast that aside and say, Jesus, I'll follow you. Wherever you say go, I'll go. And be humble before him. So how does Nicodemus take all this? The answer doesn't come in John 3. The next time we actually hear Nicodemus is in John chapter 7. And what happens there is the Pharisees have now had enough of Jesus. They said, it's time to get rid of this guy. And they're looking to capture him and have him killed. Right? And the Sanhedrin is meeting in this private hushed meeting. And they're saying, let's get this guy. And what do we see Nicodemus say? Look at verse 50 of chapter 7. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, being one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? He stands up for Jesus. In the midst of all of his cohorts, he says, wait a second. This man hasn't been condemned. He's entitled to a trial. We need to hear from this man. You guys just can't judge him like this. And they then chastise him and say, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Those people are beneath us. No prophet will come from there. And you're a fool to think otherwise. Sit down, Nicodemus. That's what's happening. This is a gutsy move for old Nick. These are the people he's worked his whole life to impress and rise to the top of the crowd. And by saying this, he knows full well as he opens his mouth, it's going to result in a a fall from prestige, a fall from influence. The picture I want to show you of Nicodemus, the one I want you to leave with today, isn't even found in John 7, because that was a good step. But he goes further. The next time we hear of Nicodemus is that towards the end of the book of John in chapter 19. Jesus has already been crucified. He's slain, and two men show up for the body, one of which is Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a Pharisee, by the way. The second one is Nicodemus. And they come and beg for Jesus' body. Nicodemus carrying 75 to 80 pounds of aloes and spices and herbs to wash and cleanse his broken body to wrap him up and lay him in a tomb in front of everybody who's watching including the other Pharisees Nicodemus risks his very life to do this walk his way when no one else will Walk, with a capital H, his way, when no one else will. Be willing to be counted among those who stand for Christ 
when no one else will, when it costs you an awful lot. The Bible records nothing else of Nicodemus. We're left to assume that he's seen the light. His actions at the cross that day surely suggest that strongly. By the end, he must have known that Jesus was the Son of God. Easter morning probably sorted that out for everybody really clearly, didn't it? You think Nicodemus would have given anything to go back that night to Jesus' room and commit everything to following him? I think he had one major regret. Nicodemus waited. In chapter 3, we don't hear that Nicodemus said, Jesus, thank you for explaining everything to me, and I see where I've been wrong, and I need help to follow you. I can't do it on my own. Have your way in my life, Jesus. Let me follow you. Let me learn from you. You think that might have been a regret? You think he would have traded everything to go back and to walk with Jesus, to eat with him? to tell jokes with him. Imagine his heart in chapter 19 having missed that opportunity and wrapping up the body of Jesus. This was God. I should have come to him in chapter 3 and I should have stayed. I should have given everything. What about you? What about you this morning? Would you go back today and trade everything to sit next to Peter and James and John around a campfire and listen to Jesus teach you? To listen to him unpack the word of God from the very mouth of God? Would you do that? Nicodemus came a long way. He took a lot of steps between chapter 3 and chapter 19, didn't he? What I'm going to ask you today is to take a step. And don't wait. If Nicodemus were here, he'd say, this is chapter 3 right here this morning. Do it today. Take a step towards Jesus. And don't delay. As the band comes up, I'd like to invite uh, the elders to go ahead and take their positions too. We're going to do something we we don't do a whole lot of here at River Rock. and What I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that Jesus always calls you somewhere. You ever notice that in Jesus' stories? He's always calling people somewhere. Leave your nets and your fish. Come with me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Hey, leave your tax collector booth. Leave everything there, including all the money you've swindled out of people. Come with me. Follow me. Nicodemus, leave your ways that you think are right and all your pride. Learn to be humble. Come follow me. Come follow me. He's never static. He's always calling us somewhere. Jesus is never content to let us sit and put our feet up, is he? You know why? You know why? This is why. Because he sees you, the version in his mind when he made you, when he knit you together in your mother's womb. Jesus sees that man. He sees that woman. And he says, That's the one. 
That's the one I want to make. And he's coming to you today. He came to you then. You don't even got to show up at his room. He came to you and he died on a cross. He gave everything for you and I. So that we could be the people that his kingdom is built in. And he wants that for me this morning. He wants that for you this morning. And all of us are more like Nicodemus than we want to admit. All of us are prideful. All of us have sin. All of us are not where we need to be. Will you be humble this morning? I'd like you all to look at the back of your connection card. There's a box on the top left on the back. It says, my next step today. And there's a few steps there. One of them is I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel for the first time in your life. You've heard that Jesus came to die in your place, to take the place for your sin, that you were spiritually dead in your transgressions and that Jesus came to bring you life if you will believe in him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And trust him today. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness or forgive somebody else. And that's the step Jesus is asking you to do. Maybe you see today that you've had too much pride. You tried to do things your own way for too long. You're not willing to submit. <laughs> Maybe you realize today that you don't spend enough time sitting at his feet and listening to him because as a child of God, you can do that today. You can open the word of God and open your heart and spend time in prayer with the God of the universe. And you need to be held accountable and say, God, help me to be more disciplined in prayer and reading of your word. Maybe you need to chase after formal discipleship. Maybe you know that there's power in the body of Christ and that there are people here that you could learn from and commit to at weekly time to study God's word together and to take next steps Maybe you need to learn how to share the gospel with others or you need to seek help in breaking free from a specific sin. It could be any of these things and it could be something that's not even on this list. I'm sure we don't have a card big enough to hold them all. But what I'd like for you all to do is to bow your heads and pray and just ask the Holy Spirit. What's my next step today, Father? Here's what I'm sure of. Your next step may not be on that card. But nobody should leave here today without saying in their heart, God, I have a next step. None of us are where we need to be. We're going to have a time of prayer. Now, you can stay where you're at, and you can pray, and you can talk to God there, certainly. But there's something powerful about coming to a brother or sister and saying, I need help with fill in the blank. Will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? We've got our elders positioned around the room. I'll be over here in this corner. And I want to invite you, if you need prayer for anything, anything at all, or something on this list, don't wait. Don't wait. Stand from your chair. Come and let us pray for you.
Let's pray.